prosecutors are always alleging wire fraud. Almost every single time you see a big name prosecution by federal prosecutors, you won't go broke if you bet there being a wire fraud claim. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Thursday, May 18th. Today, I'm joined by Eric Gardner to talk about Sam Bankman-Fried's surprising, possibly brilliant defense strategy, and whether his lawyers can knock down the fraud charges against him. Plus, is claiming incompetence enough to keep him out of jail? We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Welcome to The Powers That Be. I'm Ben Landy, uh, and I've got Eric Gardner with us. Hey, Eric. Hey, how's it going? Eric, I wanted to have you on today to talk about Sam Bankman-Fried's defense strategy, because just looking at this case as someone who's been following the story pretty closely, but obviously I'm not a lawyer, he seems sort of obviously guilty to me, like the the basic facts of the case, which nobody disputes, which is that he absconded with all this customer money, whether it was sort of co-mingled or borrowed or loaned or or exactly how the money was moved around. It's undisputed that this money was shared between FTX customer accounts and Alameda Research, which was the sort of sister investment firm that was essentially part of the FTX Sam Bankman-Fried empire. And he took this money and, and he lost it. He lost it on, you know, big bets that made FTX extremely overleveraged while the cryptocurrency market was melting down. And then when customers went to go get their money, it wasn't there. But if you look at this new pre-trial motion from Sam's defense, which lays out their counterargument, you wrote that what you found there was actually pretty compelling, or at least kind of clever. 
Can you explain what they're arguing, why they think that these charges are overblown? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, the criminal justice system, you know, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. So we should say that. Now, obviously, the facts are not that much in dispute. It's basically how we interpret these facts and whether they rise to crimes. And, you know, what his defense lawyers are saying is that, you know, you can look at these facts and take what the prosecutors allege and assume them to be true. And they still don't rise to the particular fraud uh, crimes that the prosecutors are alleging. Uh, Last week, prosecutors were attacked on on many different grounds. And honestly, the, the, the one that I picked up on the fraud claim may not even have been the headline uh, motion. There were motions that were attacking uh, the the campaign finance charges. And there were, you know, motions that were directed towards the discovery that they had gotten. And the core part of the, the prosecutor's case to me has always seemed to be how FTX customer funds were used, misappropriated, absconded with, as you, as you as you put it. And the question is, does that rise to criminal fraud? And that gets to a particular issue where it's a little dicey because if you look at the criminal fraud statute, it's supposed to be someone being deprived of property. And what what Sam Bankman-Fried's lawyers are saying here is that what happened was not someone being deprived of property. What happened was someone being deprived of access to control their accounts. Whether or not this is going to be semantics and whether it's going to be something that they have to prove at trial is, is going to be an interesting issue, but it sets up a lot of dynamite issues and a lot of ways that, that we can see the defense trying to wiggle out of what's alleged here. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like splitting hairs to me, but again, I'm not a lawyer. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty. Let's dive in more specifically here because, Eric, you've done some reporting on this the other day, and you noted that Sam's team caught a couple of big breaks with other sort of related cases that were resolved in such a way that might give hope to his team. Can you explain a little bit more? Sure. Well, you know, uh, over the years, prosecutors are always alleging wire fraud. Almost every single time you see a big name prosecution by by federal prosecutors, you know, you won't go broke if you bet there being a wire fraud (laughs) claim. And most of these instances, there are plea deals and they're never tested. But there are a few times when they are tested. And in in, in some of those cases, they've gone to the Supreme Court and defendants have been pretty successful over the years in uh, battling prosecutors' theories. You know, it's kind of like a a dirty little secret that for prosecution, it's really tough to prove fraud. And recently, we we have seen that. What happened last week were a couple of different developments. One was in the the infamous Varsity Blues case. Those were those parents who paid to get their kids in elite schools. And, you know, there were something like 50 parents who pled guilty on that. And I think everyone kind of assumed that, you know, these parents were screwed and, and it was a situation that, of course, they did it and everything like that. But the First Circuit Court of Appeals took a look at it and they looked at the fraud case and they said, you know, what is it that you know, people were being deprived of. Was were the universities deprived of honest services from you know their admissions officers? Um, you know, doing something. Uh, no, that that can't be the the case. Are admission slots 
property. They weren't ready to accept that. They said that that's something that, that needed to be proven at trial and the prosecutors needed to set that up better. And so, you know, they looked at the whole case and they kind of like threw it out and, you know, had more of the Varsity Blues parents tested it. They might have come, come with a similar outcome where, you know, they would have beat in charges. Yeah, wait, Eric, explain this a little bit more because I don't totally understand this case. And it seems like it's, it's relevant to what Sam Bankman Freed's lawyers are, are trying to argue here. Are they saying that the, the universities weren't deprived of anything because they actually made money from the bribes or that like other parents weren't necessarily deprived of anything because they didn't actually have those admission spots for their own kids in the first place? Yeah, they were saying that, that no one was deprived of anything. They were saying that to the extent that, you know, bribes were paid or, or you know, money was made for admission slots and and to get their kids in, on, you know, these varsity teams and everything like that. The money was going to the universities. And so who was it that was being defrauded here? What exactly was the fraud? And you can say very broadly, you know, from a non-legal standpoint, oh, yeah, there, there, there was fraud there. You know, all the people who were applying to colleges who didn't get in because of these parents parents, you know, that that was a fraud on them. Sure. Yeah. But that doesn't fit the, the purpose of, of the statute itself. It, it The statute itself is not to punish dishonesty. It's not to punish devious dealings. It's a specific thing. It's defra- defrauding someone of property or money, uh, you know, in, in a certain way, in a scheme or artifice. And the, the prosecutors just didn't make the the case here. The, the the appeals court took a look at this, and they just didn't think that it was enough, and so they vacated the appeal. Now, this was just one circuit in the court. It's the first circuit, which deals with stuff in in the Upper East region of the uh, the country around Maine and Massachusetts. So its holding is not precedential on other parts of the country. There were, you know, I think in, in, in the D.C. circuit, for for instance, they said that admission slots could be property. And so that sets up a split. But in that, that case, I think a parent actually won a trial. Um, so there was no, you know, further appellate case over that. But, you know, this is the sort of thing that it gets fussed over. And on, on appeals courts and sometimes goes to the Supreme Court. And that's what happened in a different case uh, last week where, you know, this, you know, construction guy was accused of, you know, participating with, with some Cuomo officials in rigging a bidding process for developmental contracts. They were, you know, accusing him of a fraud, and the Supreme Court said, "Well, where's the fraud there?" You know, and and they looked at the theory that that was was made that it was it was all about you know depriving the person who was doling out the the contracts with some information, and the Supreme Court said, "No, that's not good." Even though this was a fraud theory that's been used countless times over the decades. It was used to punish people who were deceiving the the NCAA, for for instance, in a, in a college sports case a few years ago. This sort of thing, most of the time, this stuff doesn't get challenged because there are federal minimums and you know, defendants don't want to take the the risk of spending decades in in jail. They'd rather you know take the plea, serve a few years in a comfy prison, um, or as as comfy as white collar defendants usually <laughs> serve, and and that's it. That, but for a very few defendants who are well resourced, they they fight this sort of thing, and they they you know they throw these truth bombs into the judicial bl- bloodstream, and they 
provide, you know, hard things for courts to think about. And, you know, that's what we're, you know, basically seeing here um, in the the Sam Bankman-Fried case. I mean, he, at least right now, he's not pleading out. He's challenging it. He's setting up some, you know, interesting theories and whether or not these go on appeal at some point, we'll see. But for now, this is the first step of a many-step process that will cause judges to kind of like think really hard about like what's going on here. Right. So connecting this back to SBF, the parallel argument, not to be too reductive, is something like Sam Bankman-Fried didn't steal his customers' deposits. He didn't defraud them of that money. He just essentially, he borrowed out without telling them, right? He, He used this money for other purposes that they were not made aware of. And then oops, a couple of mistakes later, the cryptocurrency melts down. They go to get their money back. And it turns out, it's not there. The, the, the company's been overleveraged. That was a mistake that, that Sam has confessed to, but that it was not fraud. To me, again, this sort of sounds like a distinction without a difference, but is that essentially the kind of theory they're putting forward here? Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds ludicrous to, to many of us, but let me just play devil's advocate for a second. Please. If you have you know $10,000 under your mattress and you go to the bank and you drop off the money at the bank, uh, and then a week later you go back, I mean, you, you expect to have access to $10,000, but you don't expect to have access to the exact same $10,000 bills that you dropped off because you understand that the bank uh, you know, uses the money and they... they you know, invested out. And, you know, that's how banks work. And to the same extent, what the FTX people are arguing is that these funds were were put in, but, um, you know, maybe the customers weren't told exactly what was happening to their accounts. Uh, Maybe they were told that they expected that it was going to be in segregated accounts and that they'd always have access to it and there'd be no problems with it. And they were deceived. Um, Now, the question is, though, were they deprived of property per se, or were they deprived of access to an account? And I know it's splitting hairs, but that splitting hairs, it could be very important with how this case you know, follows and whether or not the prosecutors can make their fraud games. One of the things that, that caught my eye last week was an article um, in, in the New York Times is all about how the stewards, the new stewards of FTX had, you know, in trying to like reclaim the money for all the customers, they sold one of the assets and that asset now is worth like a billion dollars. So they rushed the judgment. They sold off what they could right away, but had they like waited a little bit longer, they would have recovered an extra billion dollars. And I think, you know, that's basically what the, uh, you know, the SBF legal team is priming. This case that, you know, the prosecutors rushed in here, you know, they're they're really kind of like making hay over the fact that a lot of customers, uh, you know, lost access to their their accounts at like the deep part of the crypto winter. Um, But had they like waited a little bit for regulators to come in, for the markets to calm down, that, uh, you know, no one would have actually have lost anything. Right. I mean, part of what seems so fishy about this from the outside is that Bankman-Fried and FTX, they were using as collateral for these loans or commingling of funds, a essentially a made up digital token, the house token of FTX. And so when the and so when there was a run on the bank, that token essentially became worthless, that the value plunged overnight. That was a massive problem for their ability to repay this money. 
But yeah, Sam has made essentially that that point many times now that if he was given enough time and latitude to recapitalize, to bring in new investors, the value of that currency would have gone back up and he would have been able to make everybody whole. Eric, I've got more questions for you, but let's take a quick break. and We'll get back into it afterwards. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back. So Eric, this defense that Sam Bankman-Fried's team is laying out here in this pretrial motion, it seems very sort of hyper-legalistic, like this debate club argument that's going to go over the head of a lot of people. You've done a great job explaining it, but is this primarily for the judge early on in order to try and get some of these charges dropped, or is this also a preview of the kind of argument they might make before a jury? Yeah, I mean, in in some instances, I think if you put the defense team under truth serum, they will admit that they don't expect to, to win this motion right away. I think that they hope maybe to trim some of the charges. Uh, I think they'd be hopeful that the, the judge would dismiss the bank fraud claim, for instance. But, uh, you know, I think it'd be a real surprise if the judge just throws out all the fraud, fraud charges right away. And you could kind of tell that because it wasn't really the headline motion. I think they made much more of a, a stink about how prosecutors had tricked Bahamas into extraditing him and then and then charged uh, Sam Beckman-Fried with uh, campaign finance charges. So I don't think right away that, that we're going to see any major development on, on, the, on the fraud claims. But I think there's going to be a, a very important back and forth um, between the prosecutors and the defense team arguments. And then the judge is going to have to make a decision and the judge is going to say like like what exactly it is that's going to be tried before a jury and that opinion and that dynamic at trial could be the the something that really establishes number one whether or not the the parties decide to you know plea out and number two uh, where it might go on appeal after the trial is done and whether Sam Bankman-Fried might have any shot at convincing a higher authority to review these these charges and to you know really take a look at you know whether or not these are, are uh, well pled uh, fraud charges or whether or not prosecutors ha- are kind of stressed 
stretching the boundaries of of uh, you know wire fraud here to to match this crypto thing that's happening here. So I think it it sets up the long game. I think, uh, but uh, it also kind of impacts some some of the short term stuff that that we're go- about to see. Well, it's interesting how Bankman Fried's legal defense has sort of evolved over time because, you know, even before he was indicted and after he was arrested as well, he had this sort of pre-legal team PR spin that he was putting out there, including when he talked to our colleague, Teddy Schleifer, who interviewed him at his house in um, Palo Alto, where Sam was basically just saying, look, things got out of control. I wasn't paying enough attention to the details. There were all these unlabeled accounts. And it's it's totally easy to lose to lose track of a couple billion dollars. Anyone could have done it. This feels like a pretty different kind of legal approach here, what we're talking about today. But I imagine as far as trying to convince a jury that that Sam was just negligent, that he made mistakes, a lot of this is going to come down to discovery. What actually turns up in terms of communications between Sam and his lieutenants, the CEO of Alameda Research, Caroline Ellison, who has taken a plea deal, uh, she's going to be presumably testifying against him. She was his girlfriend at the time. What kind of communications were there between the two of them and other people that maybe lay out his actual thinking at the time? Because I, I assume that intent is going to be a huge part of this case. Yeah, I mean, intent is definitely an underrated part of this case because, you know, in for, in these white-collar fraud cases, that's always been, you know, a sticking point for prosecutors. And here, you know, it's not going to just be like, you know, did he have, like, intent to take all this money? I mean, like, they, they have to, like, show, like, a scheme to to really, like, trick all these consumers into it. You know, hey, let's let's tell them one thing, but what in actuality what we're going to do is, is going to, like, take all the money and invest it. I think that, you know, that could be, you know, fairly challenging. I think that, uh, you know, the prosecutors are certainly helped by the fact that they have so many cooperating witnesses right now. Uh, I think they might want to bolster, you know, the victim part of this, (laughs) the case that hasn't gotten a lot of attention in court right right now. But uh, I think that if the defense team is going to make some bones about what it is people are being deprived of here. It might, you know, behoove the prosecutors to like actually put, you know, some FTX customers on the witness stand to, to take the jury through the real pain of uh, of what happens here. Discovery is a you know pretty interesting thing too. Obviously, uh, SBF uh, and his legal team they feel like they haven't gotten enough. They made a pretty interesting argument in their motions uh, last week, also that basically prosecutors have deputized the uh, new FTX leadership, and so that they're saying that that the new company is is basically on the prosecution's team and they should like give him access to into all sorts of bits of discovery so so he can like plan a defense i think that's an interesting motion to watch um yeah it's a it's it's a really fascinating discussion i think there's going to be a lot of activity in the next couple months um and the hearing itself is going to be really fascinating well to the point you were making at the beginning of our conversation most defendants don't actually see this whole thing play out, right? Like there were 50 guilty pleas in the Varsity Blues case, but only four people actually fought those charges. And most of them ended up getting their convictions overturned or getting a new trial or being acquitted. So it seems like there's a lot that could still happen here that would be surprising. And obviously Sam Bankman-Fried himself, he he doesn't have a lot to lose. I mean, he's facing many, many decades behind bars. He's going to see this thing through to the very end, presumably. When are we going to next hear from the judge who's actually presiding in this case? When do we get his response on this latest motion from the Bankman-Fried team? 
Well, in the next couple of weeks, we should have the uh, prosecutors uh, answering uh, the, the motion to dismiss. So we'll hear the counter arguments to that. And then there'll be a reply round where uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's basically replied to, to what the prosecutors just said and tried to defend their you know initial arguments. And then there'll be a hearing where for maybe like the first time, Sam Bankman-Fried's lawyers and the prosecutors get before the judge. And it'll be a very long hearing, probably, you know, given the complexity of this case. And they'll go over everything and, and the judge will then take it all under submission in all probability. And then a few months later, he'll make a, a big decision about which of these charges carry forward to trial and what exactly will need to be proven. In the meantime, discovery will continue. And eventually, uh, right before trial, uh, you know, the, the parties will make motions about what, what witnesses they wish to call and, you know, which evidence is improper and improper. Uh, and the judge will have to make another ruling on that score. And then, uh, you know, uh, later this autumn, uh, we'll have a trial. Yeah, and I, I'm assuming they were going to. I mean, Sam told Teddy when they spoke that he absolutely wants to see this through to the end, that he intends to go to trial. But, you know, anything could happen. He could take a plea deal at any time. But uh, regardless, Eric, this is so fascinating. We'll be watching to see how it all unfolds. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Dylan Byers. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck, and Bob Tabador.